there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Our friends over at Now Novel are running a limited time offer for their group coaching program. If you haven't heard of Now Novel, they're an online writing platform and crit community that helps aspiring authors write more together. Until the 8th of May, get $200 off group coaching, a six-month course including writing sprints, webinars with published authors and editors, and weekly craft workbooks and feedback. Alumni have finished drafts in two months, reached the querying stage, and achieved their writing goals. But that's not all. To make things even more exciting, we're teaming up for a contest for you to win a place in the course. Here's how to enter. Go to our website under the contests page. You will find a link to Now Novel where you will fill in the blanks to enter. The sentence that you're going to have to fill in the blanks for is... Nobody ever told me about the secret something in something, WTF. You will share your creative sentence on socials, tagging us at the podcast and at Now Novel. The deadline is the 1st of May, so don't miss your chance to win. Remember, you'll find all of those details on our website under the contest page. What are you waiting for? Go ahead and enter straight away. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's Books with Hooks. Hey, everyone. So before we get started, I just wanted to say that I am offering a Putting the Hook in Your Book webinar on May 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to cover all sorts of things, including the definition of a hook, the different types of hooks, elements of a hook, examples, as well as how-to things such as how to make sure your hook is strong enough, how to sharpen your hook, and how to frame your hook in a query letter. So that's on May 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Writers of all genres and categories are encouraged to attend. Links for that are on my bio. So just take a look at my socials, Look at go to my bio, and you'll find the link. And I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you, Cece. That sounds like a really fun event. And now for our first query letter. Dear Cece Lira, Thank you for all the helpful advice you, Carly, and Bianca share on This Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I saw that you're looking for historical fiction with a contemporary feel and a strong sense of place, as well as stories told from perspectives of two or more women with unsavory emotions. My 100,000-word dual POV upmarket historical novel, The Favored Sister, with queer romance and dark elements, fits that bill perfectly. The novel combines the feminist sensibility of Elena Ferrante with the dark themes and atmospherics of Purge by Sophie Oksanen and the fraught sibling relationship in C. Pam Zhang's How Much of These Hills is Gold, casting an often nostalgized world in a new light. In spring 1911, two newly orphaned sisters arrive in Vienna. The older Emilia longs to join the social life of the Viennese coffeehouses but feels doomed to forever be a housekeeper, always taking care of someone else. The younger Jalanka is a prepubescent prodigy, their father's favorite, yet she suffers terrible nightmares that feature him. The reason for their leaving and coming to far-off Vienna remains an open secret between them. 
After meeting the beguiling redhead Renata, Emilia finds work in a cake shop and begins to discover Viennese social life, as well as her own talents. She also finds herself falling in love with Renata. Meanwhile, Jalanka becomes a fortune teller's apprentice to earn money for school, getting to know another side of this imperial capital. While the sisters live separate lives together, the effects of their father's abuse linger in their present until Jalanka confesses to their father's murder out loud. Rather than resolve their tensions, Jalanka's confession just might tear the sisters apart for good. I am an American-born writer living in the former lands of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in Prague, the Czech Republic. I have published some short fiction in various online publications, and I currently lead a locally-based critique group. The first 10,000 words of this manuscript were selected as a runner-up for the Irish Writer Center 2023 Novel Fair. When not working or writing, I'm nerding out on history, exploring new places, or spending time in nature with my wonderful supportive partner. Enclosed are the first five pages. As a content warning, The Favored Sister includes depictions of CSA, self-harm, and suicide. Thank you for reading. I look forward to your response. Thank you, Cece. So tell us how long it was and what you thought of it. This is clocking in at 403 words, good length, especially for dual POV historical. This is really impressive. So I think you created a new word, a neologism, if you will. And I love that. Often nostalgized. I don't even know if I can pronounce that, but I love the word. So amazing. Let me give you my notes on the query letter. There's a very small note about a clause that you've isolated, and I think you can just link it to the previous sentence, yet she suffers terrible nightmares that feature him. You can just link that to the previous sentence, and that way you'll have one sentence of setup for one sister and one sentence of setup for the other sister. It just makes it a little quicker, a little tighter, not a big deal at all. When it comes to the plot paragraph, there's a line that reads, until Jalanka confesses to their father's murder out loud. I was like, does that mean she killed him? Or like, did he commit a murder? I'm pretty sure it's the first option. But if it's the first option, is that a spoiler? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how early on in the story that happens. And I'm thinking, if it's a spoiler, maybe don't tell us so early. Like, I just don't know. I really wish I could ask the author. Basically, if this is happening before the climax, then then I guess it's okay to, to say it. But then we need a little bit more after the climax. But if it's happening after the climax, I think you've just given us a spoiler. So you might want to consider just cutting back on that. Who did she confess to? Did Jalanka confess to her sister, Emilia? Because if so, before you said it was an open secret. And so I guess I assumed open secret meant like they both knew about it, but maybe now I'm thinking open secret means like there is a secret, but nobody knows what what the secret is. None of these things are big deals. It's just questions that are going through my mind. I I really like the way you framed the plot paragraph. I thought you did a really good job. I really like the author paragraph. You did a really good job of also like just giving us a little bit of your personality and your life. I will say that when it comes to the content note, one thing that I didn't know, like the initialism CSA, I did not know what that meant. And now, of course, I do know because I looked it up. And I do think that maybe you might want to perhaps explain that, perhaps write it out. Like as at least Google told me that it's child sexual abuse. So I don't know. It's it's definitely a big, big content warning and you need it there. But I don't know if the initialism is that commonly known. Do you know it, Carly? No, I was just nodding along because I do think you have to spell that one out because it kind of seems like you might be hiding behind the initials on that one. And yeah, kind of need to spell that one out. A lot of people think that, you know, even the words will be triggering. So it's not that I don't respect that because of course I do. It's just 
making us look it up might be even more triggering. So yeah, if that's if that's in your novel, you know, you, you do need the content warning. So good job including it. I would just not keep it as an initialism. But yeah, overall, really good job. I really enjoy this query letter. All right. So tell us what is in these opening pages. So this starts off with something called chapter zero, which is, I think, a very, very sneaky prologue, I'm thinking. But it doesn't read like a prologue. At least I didn't think so. So I don't know. Again, another question I have, like, is this a prologue? Uh, Maybe a prologue is like chapter minus one or something. I don't know. (laughs) Right? Like that actually makes more sense. I don't know. This is very interesting. I like the chapter zero thing. So very cool. Here's what happens. April 1911, right? We have a timestamp right away. Really appreciated that. The two sisters are on a train for their first time in a train. And they are writing to Vienna. Emilia, whose head we're in, has no idea why we're going to Vienna. Her younger sister told her that they had to. She asked why, but her sister would not say why. At the end of the day, they just accepted that they're going to Vienna. While she's on the train, Emilia considers that she will just stop at a different city and just stay there. And, you know, Jalanka can 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 just, you know, give up her idea of going to Vienna, if you will, or even Jalanka can stay. But then when they get off the train, she realizes that she can't do that to her sister. So they actually do end up going to Vienna. And then we have a little bit of chapter one, which is also Amelia's point of view. And that's June 1911. So, you know, a little bit of time has gone by April and June. And essentially, it's we only get a little bit of that. And it's Amelia's interiority saying, you know, I didn't think that I'd be a housekeeper when 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 I came to Vienna, but, but that's where I am. All right. And what did you think of these opening pages? <laughs> okay, so I thought the chapter zero thing was quite original and cute. I did think that The first line is, three days after our father died, we boarded a train for the first time. That is a strong first line. But it does mean that they've never been on a train before. And there is absolutely no interiority or even dialogue on, hey, what is a train, right? Like, not what is a train they don't know, but like, I thought that on a train X happened, but really Y happens. Like, there's no sense of novelty. There's no sense of comparing your expectations with reality. And that's usually what happens when you do something for the first time, like your first time on a plane, your first time on a train, your first time going to a new city, you usually have expectations and interiority should establish how those expectations compare to reality. So I thought that was something that was missing. The protagonist is looking through a photo book, right? Like my mother's photo book of Budapest. Budapest is the place she wants to go to, but unfortunately they're going to go to Vienna. I don't know enough about this, but from watching Downtown Abbey and other very, you know, historically accurate shows, I feel like photos, photography back then was a really special thing, right? So the fact that her mom has a photo book is probably not common. My question is, like, have you taken this into consideration? Like, have you taken into consideration the fact that of how unlikely it would be for her to have a photo book. If you have, and there's a reason, I think that the sense of wonder with that photo book, the care they should have because of how rare it is, not to mention the fact that it's a memento from their mother, should be a little bit more thoroughly established. There are many things that are working here, a lot of visuals that are working, but I did feel that at times I'd want sharper specifics. So here's an example. There's a line that reads, this is Amelia talking about her sister. And stared her down the way she could always stare me down when she wanted another helping of food or wanted me to do something for her outside of my normal chore duties. Another helping of food. My normal chore duties. That's a little generic, right? Imagine, especially for historical fiction, you have to lean into specifics. Imagine that someone were writing historical fiction of the year 2023. Instead of helping of food, someone might say avocado toast 
or they might say, I don't know, sushi, like whatever people are eating in 2023 in that place. And instead of normal chore duties, you might say something like whenever she interrupted my Zoom meetings, because, you know, in the year 2060, when people are looking back at 2023, Zoom meetings are a thing. So I don't know. I think I just want to know, like, what what typical food? And I know that she interrupts you in helpings of various foods, but sharp specifics aren't meant to illustrate every single food she ever ate. They're meant to illustrate a specific memory. So I think that I would just lean into sharper details when it comes to passages like that. And I have highlighted them for you. Overall, like the relationship between the sisters, it just didn't seem realistic to me. If she's the eldest and Amelia is the eldest, typically that's the protector, right? And when they're talking to each other and Jalanka says, it has to be Vienna, I'm not going to tell you why, Emilia has no theories, none. She should have theories. Intelligent people have theories. Intelligent people ask specific questions. And also, why is she agreeing? That's what I don't get. You know, why is she giving in to her younger sister? I'm not saying there can't be a reason. There are a million plausible reasons. But since we don't know the reason, she just sorts of like does it. Then I didn't believe it, especially since like midway, she thought about, you know, I'll stay in Budapest instead of going back in the train. But then she looks at her sister, who's like really young and decides she can't do that. It just, again, did not feel plausible to me. And I think that there might be a really interesting reason for all these things. You just didn't put it on the pages. So often uh, I talk to authors and authors go, actually, here's the reason. And the reason's awesome. But then you didn't put that on the pages and you know more about your character than we do. And it has to make sense. So those are my notes for these pages. I really enjoy them. Thank you for that, Susie. All right. Now let's go to the second query letter. Carly, will you read that for us? Dear Carly, I'm a fan of the shit and your no-nonsense approach to books with hooks. I'm pitching a charming yet often comical coming of middle-age memoir, 70,000 words, with the title One Week at a Time. My story combines the adventure and personal growth of Cheryl Strayed's Wild, if retold by David Sedaris at a depression support group. I was re-emerging from a three-year crippling depression as I approached my 49th birthday. My husband and two teenagers wanted me back to normal, but I couldn't remember what that felt like. I needed to find meaning and reasons to carry on when I made the most impulsive decision of my life. I would plan 50 new experiences before my 50th birthday. With no strategy, but a deep feeling that I needed this adventure to discover who I was, I found myself at goat yoga, having a food fight, milking a cow, and learning to juggle. During the year, I was stifled by my abandonment issues, derailed by a lump in my breast, stopped by a broken bone, and doubted by a vegan yoga instructor. One Week at a Time chronicles my healing through a midlife crisis on a journey that challenged me, broke me, and ultimately put me back together. Fans of Between Two Kingdoms or Group, How One Therapist and a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life will find new insights in One Week at a Time. I have been building my voice online for eight years with humor and slackjaw, belladonna, funny times, and more. My personal essays appear in four published anthologies and have two awaiting publication in the Huffington Post and Awakenings Review this spring. I'm a graduate of the University of Toronto's Creative Writing Certificate Program and a proud member of your deep dive community. Before I became a full-time mother and dog servant, I worked in marketing for 11 years. I would love to send you my complete memoir and proposal. I've enclosed the first five pages of my manuscript for your consideration and a picture of my dog, Scooby, because he made me. Thank you in advance, Christine Leko. And yes, there is a picture of Scooby at the bottom. <laughs> I love the picture of Scooby. Okay, that's amazing. And what did you think of that query letter? And what was the word count? All right, this one clocked in at 345 words. So it was double spaced on the page, which was nice for my eyes, but came in at a nice tight 345. So I think that was great. Okay, 
So let's start here with our comps. I don't know if we can call these comps because at the top it says, if Cheryl Strayed's wild, if retold by David Sedaris. Well, I was thinking these were the comps. And then as you guys heard, when we get to the bottom, there are book comps, like actual title comps at the bottom. So I am very torn about this because obviously these are incredibly famous people, but they're famous for writing. Like, I will give you that, but I will also say it's a lot to live up to, right? When we comp ourselves to famous people, best-selling people, we're essentially saying we are as famous and best-selling as these people, or we aspire to be. Again, I'm all for ambition. That's fine. But we have to kind of place ourselves with some awareness. And so that's kind of why I like the comps at the bottom a little bit better. Um, I was also thinking of my what if year um, as a comp as well. So that's a potential for you as well. In terms of the wording. So it says I was reemerging from a three year crippling depression. I would say from three years of crippling depression. I don't know. To me, that sounded a bit better. The other thing I want to draw attention to is I think crippling is some ableist language. So we might want to just swap that out for something else. Okay. And so for me, the hook here is kind of the fact of the 50 new experiences before my 50th birthday, obviously like paired with trying to break through, you know, this depression that you've been in. Right. So, and so you bury the, I need to find meaning, et cetera, 50 new experiences in the middle of that paragraph. I almost feel like you have to start with that and then explain the reason for exploring these 50 experiences is to break through to the depression. I don't know, just cause like, that's more of the hook to me personally. I like the variety, you know, the goat yoga, the food fight, the milk and the cow. Like I, essentially a book is something that other people want to read, right? This isn't just for you. And so you did pick things and are writing about things that I do think people would be generally interested in. Another thing that I think seems like something that's bearing the lead of it is this potential for breast cancer, right? See, derailed by a lump of my breast. So how derailed, I guess is my question here. Is this going to be a major part of the book? Because if so, it's kind of buried at the bottom here. So I wasn't sure if we were trying to not draw attention to it because it is going to be a spoiler later on, or again, you didn't think it was that important to me. It kind of, that seems pretty important. So those, those are my main issues, but overall, I think, I think this is fun. It's got a bit of a hook to it, you know, with our, our one week at a time exploring different experiences. I think it's fun. Very cool. What was in those opening pages? Okay, so we start with our prologue, and she is in a yoga studio, our main character here, and kind of asked, being asked to reflect by the yoga instructor, says, what do you learn about yourself in our time together? And she's doing a little bit of reflecting, and then we flip to chapter one, and it says one year earlier, September 2017. And then that is the moment that she is unwrapping the journal that she is asked to reflect on in the prologue. So she's unwrapping her journal for the first time, and she talks to her husband about what she wants her. 50th birthday kind of gift to be and there's some dialogue back and forth about what she's decided which is that she's going to do these experiences and he asks some questions about like how is this going to work maybe how much is this going to cost and he's very supportive and a charming husband kind of wanting her to again break through this this fog of depression and uh, just a little bit of a couple dialogue and, and that's where we are and how was the execution give us your notes i'm not sure that i love the prologue because i don't know how much time has passed i don't know if this is potentially in the middle of her year experiences. I don't know if this is towards the end. I have a sense it's towards the end, but it's a bit leading because there's this whole idea of, you know, she's reflecting on her year, right? And then we go back to the beginning and it, this sets us up for the year. So I understand as a structural 
choice. It makes a lot of sense. I'm just worried it's a little too cutesy. I don't know. Again, this could be a very, a very personal, personal take here. So I wasn't sure with the instructor. There's a line here that says, so what did you learn about yourself in our time together? Our instructor smiled and angled his body towards me. His breath smelled like peppermint. And I was like, how close are these two people sitting? Like, can you really like smell your instructor's breath? Or it was like, you know, from interacting with them for the week, that's what their breath smells like. I don't know. To me, it was like, we're really trying to bring this closeness. We're really trying to bring some specificity. And then I was just like, wait, are these two like breathing in each other's faces? So that's, that stopped me in my path a little bit, but I really like how specific we are about the journal. That's what I like the specificity of, right? It's like the book was new, it smelled like woodsy pulp and glue when I started. Now it smells of stale coffee spills, sweat, winter green gum wrappers, and the acrid scent of pencil lead. So I like the specificity of the journal, less so of smelling our instructor's breath. Okay, so we also slip into the past in our prologue, and I would really avoid that because it's like a prologue to our prologue, and we don't need a prologue upon a prologue upon a prologue. We need one prologue, and that is all. So I would really just cut the entire slipping back into the past bit, and, and so that would make our prologue really short. That would make our prologue only one page, which isn't a problem. But again, it's very much like a plant for structure. Okay, so our chapter one here, again, we start with the journal explaining, you know, how it smells when it's fresh. Again, I love this. I love the journal as, as the grounding thing here. I like that quite a bit. I want to talk a little bit about our framing of depression, of her depression. So again, I'm not saying that all books have to be all things to all people, but there are lots of people that can't go off their depression meds for various reasons. And so her attempt to be like, I'm going to come off my depression medication. I'm going to like, I don't know, battle my depression through activity. Like I agree with that personally, but I also know that there's other people who, again, they're going to be, you know, on, on mental health medications for their whole life. So I don't know. I wasn't sure. Like, I, I don't know. As I said, I don't, I don't think all books have to be all things to all people, but I'm just worried it comes off a teensy bit glib, like a teeny, teeny, tiny bit glib. So I would just draw attention to that a little bit. Again, I really like the dialogue between the couple. I think that there's a lot of just kindness and understanding and just like thoughtfulness between their interaction, which like gave it such a loving and safe place, which I thought was a really sweet launch pad. I really liked that, but only because we know we're going on an adventure. So that's the only reason I think that sweet opening kind of worked. Towards the end, she has a real reckoning with her depression. And like, she's just scared. She's going to be depressed forever. And that is a very real fear. The way that it's written on the page was just a lot of really short staccato sentences. And so I would just like vary up that sentence structure a little bit. I, it just felt like, I think the intention was to kind of express the depression through the words. And anyway, like, I think there was intentionality there, but just the too many short sentences, I don't know. It just, it didn't work for me personally on a line level, but I think, I think this is a fun project. I think it has lots of potential. I love that. And you know, when it comes to, it's such a great point that you make that not every book is for every person, nor can it be. But at the same time, in the beginning, right, like especially in the opening pages of a manuscript before we've connected to the character, it is important, I guess, to just consider certain things. This is a this is a very thoughtful question, I feel. And, and you know, the author will know what's what's best for their manuscript, but it could even be something as simple as her recognizing the fact that she is able to do this and not everyone can in like a five five word sentence in her interiority. It could be it would say so much, right? Like it would say so much about the context of the world because it is, let's face it, a big issue, depression. All right, Cece, you're up for your next query letter. Dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca, I'm so grateful for all you do with the podcast. Thanks to the beta reader matchup, I've made wonderful new writerly friends. 
We've evolved into a solid critique group, workshopping everything from works in progress to log lines. Below are the first five pages of my novel, Get Your Shit Together, Darling, 107,000 words, which is book club fiction with a dash of literary sexiness. Set in a California beach town, this story's atmosphere is reminiscent of surf's culture's gritty side popularized in the TNT series Animal Kingdom and Taylor Jenkins Reid's Malibu Rising. A perilous family dynamic drives the plot, as in Miranda Cowley Heller's The Paper Palace, while the narrative orbits a reckless young woman discovering her sexuality and the power balance of relationships, as in Sally Rooney's Conversations with Friends. Darling Holmes has drawn a hard line between her sordid past and promising future. It's 1978 in Encinitas, California, and at only 25, she's rocking her real estate business, already bought her first home, and she's fallen headlong in love with a married woman. Complicated, perhaps, but overcoming obstacles isn't a bug in Darling's life. It's a feature. But when her father is murdered in the instantly infamous Jonestown Massacre, Darling douses her grief in tequila and grapples with pernicious rage at the cult leader who lured her father and the family's fortune away. Then her debauched history of stripping, arrests, and sugar uncles reemerges when her felonous ex-friend Billy is released from prison. Billy plans to destroy Darling since it was her big mouth that put him behind bars. Under threat of exposing Darling's once affluent family to photographic proof of her dirtiest secrets, Billy blackmails Darling into colluding in his criminal activities, including a burgeoning porn enterprise. Bending to Billy's will, Darling soon discovers a slew of teenaged girls destined to a fate worse than the life she worked so hard to escape. If she defies Billy, she risks losing her hard-won success her new love, and tenuous relationships with her surviving family. Or she can save her own skin by helping Billy destroy numerous young lives. But she can't do both. Often dark, sometimes steamy, and always with the hint of hope. Darling's late coming-of-age story is one of tenacity and discovery of a woman determined not to let her past define her future. I've been previously represented, but due to my former agent's health issues, we regrettably parted ways. This manuscript has never been on submission. My poetry has been accepted by Adana, Tool Review, and Understory. And I'm a reader for the San Diego Writers, Inc. anthology, A Year in Ink. I grew up in sunny California, where I've sold homes for 24 years, cultivating a strong marketing background and broad network. May I send you the full manuscript? Truly yours, Tanya Brooking. All right. Thank you, Cece. Tell us how long that query letter was and what your critique is. Okay, so this is clocking in at 472 words. I will say that the first paragraph promises literary sexiness, and I don't even know what that is, but I want it. So yes to literary sexiness, please. The paragraph that has the comps. This is a me thing, so feel free to ignore, but I don't think that you need four references, right? Like you don't need Animal Kingdom, Malibu Rising, The Paper Palace, and Conversations with Friends. First, because these are all so different, like so completely different. And also because I don't really understand what the book is after four comps. So it just tells me these are not the right comps. Paper Palace meets Conversations with Friends, I get. 
I also get conversations with friends meets Malibu Rising. But like the, the fourth situation combination, maybe it was too much for my brain, but it just didn't do you any favors in my opinion. I would pick two. Two comps that really position your book. When you are comping yourself to Sally Rooney, maybe that's what you mean by literary sexiness, since I can definitely see how Sally Rooney would be literary sexiness. But remember, that is such a high bar. Totally okay. To Carly's earlier point in the previous query letter, hey, you you get to be ambitious, but please know that I will be expecting a level of language and a level of hypnotic voice that is, well, Sally Rooney. So it's just something to think about, right? If it's if it's just the, the, the friend discovering the power balance and relationship aspect, then maybe it's not the right comp. I don't know. You You be the judge of that. It's something to think about. I really liked the way you framed the plot paragraph because we have her situation in life, right? And we have the complication, which is Billy showing up. I would tweak the sentence, her debauched history reemerges when her friend Billy is released, only because that makes it seem like the history is exposed, right? Like I, I, it's, it's a tweak, but it's a situation like, like the, the debauched history threatens to reemerge when Billy is released from prison. It could be something that simple just to explain that, no, it's not that her secrets have come out, since that's actually a part of the major dramatic question. It's more that Billy came out and with that, the risk of him outing her secrets. When it comes to the, the will they or won't they, the major dramatic question, I am about to give you advice that is quite prescriptive, but I, I fully stand by it because it's just human nature. I want to be clear, this is not because the protagonist is a woman. The protagonist could be of any gender, and I would be saying the same thing. This is just humanity, in my opinion. You've established the stakes, right? If she talks, if she turns Billy in, yes, she will save these teenage girls. These children, I'm assuming, maybe they're underage, or at least they're very young, definitely youth. But she will risk losing her reputation, right? Like her family might not talk to her. Her hard-won success will be out the door. Her new love will be out the door. But if she keeps her mouth shut... She is essentially hurting young women, possibly girls, but then she loses these things I just mentioned. Given the stakes, given that we're talking about teenage lives here, I don't even think there's a question. Like, I'm sorry. It's not that her reputation doesn't matter. Of course it matters. But like, I don't think that readers are going to connect with this dilemma. They're just not. For the sake of her redeemability as a character, you should give her a vulnerable person other than herself that will be at stake if she does not choose the option of protecting also herself, meaning that she's not just protecting her own reputation, she's actually protecting a vulnerable person's life. If you look at any movie, any movie, the point of no return for the hero, the point where the hero is really going, oh my gosh, what do I do? I'm between a rock and a hard place. It's never just their own skin and then, you know, multiple other vulnerable people. It's always their own skin and someone they care about, you know, like like their little sister or their child or someone who's vulnerable to them, but their parent who's elderly, I don't know. And then, you know, the fate of the world. So again, this is quite prescriptive, not something I typically do, but I am very confident in this advice. For me, if I read this query letter without a vulnerable person that she's protecting, I just go, nope, lady, you have got to save those teenage girls. It, there's no question about it. I, I feel bad for reputation. I really do. But But come on. And it's interesting because when we get to the pages, I'm going to talk about how I feel like the author can do this really easily. All right. So tell us what was in those opening pages and what you thought. So chapter one, our protagonist is at home and Billy pounds on her door. Remember, we know from the query letter that Billy is the person who went to prison because of her. And Billy is essentially there to collect 
he tells her, you know, like she asks, how did you find my place? And he tells her, look, you owe me, you know, I went to prison because of you. And they have this banter, which we, through which we understand that she has agreed, already agreed to work at his place of business so that he can pay her money, but also that he's going to ask for something else. And we don't know what the something else is yet. So essentially this ends with, with him telling her like, don't be late, you know, 7.30, not a second later. And her phone has rung and it's her sister, Cecilia, who she's really protective of. And when her sister asks, oh, who's there? She's like, oh, it's just a neighbor because she is so protective of her sister that she will not tell her sister who's actually there with her. So that's what happens. All right. And what did you think of the pages? I first want to say, and again, being very direct here, I don't think Sally Rooney is a comp. Your writing style is just way too different. If you still think it's a comp, but not in the writing style, that's okay. But when I when I hear Sally Rooney, I go, a very specific literary style. This is so much pacier, right? Like it's tighter, it's pacier. It's very well written. I just didn't get Sally Rooney vibes. Couple notes. One, the first line reads, the Monday after my dad drank the Kool-Aid at Jonestown, Billy Pipes came pounding on my door. I would tweak. Drank the Kool-Aid at Jonestown is both a little more casual than I think that the protagonist would use for such a serious thing. But also, I only know what that means because I just read the query letter. A lot of people, they will pick up a book by simply cracking open the book and reading the first line. And again, that clause, drank the Kool-Aid at Jonestown, tweak that. I like the movement. I like the fact that there's clear time and that there's action like Billy pounding on her door. I very much like that. But I would just tweak the casual tone of that. When it comes to casual tone, that's actually my other note. First, I'm confused about something. Through their dialogue, I'm understanding that they have spoken before. This is not the first time Billy came knocking on her door, or at least that Billy has approached her since leaving prison. I was under the impression that that would be a development in the story based on the query letter. So if that is not the case, then I think you need to tweak the query letter, I mean. Because it's like they've already made arrangements. They've already made, made arrangements about her working for him. He asks, oh, so your phone does work when the phone rings. And so I was just confused, I guess, about the order of events. I kind of liked the idea of Billy coming out and disrupting her life a little bit later into the story. Perhaps even in the opening scene, but then, you know, the plot needs to match the fact that this is the first time she even found out that maybe he got out of prison. Still on her interaction with Billy, there is no fear, none, when she sees him. He pounds on her door. The verb that you chose was pounding. Great verb. Isn't she afraid? Like, I get that he's not violent because there is a reference to the fact that he's not physically violent. but if you are surprised by this person who just got out of prison, who has all these secrets on you, I think you, you, your heart would be pounding too. You would be terrified, I think. She sounds really casual. It's not that we don't get interiority, we do, but there's no fear until a mention, I think, on the third or fourth page. But the fear would be visceral. The fear would be the very first thing. She's surprised that he found her home. She asks, how did you find my home? I just think you really need to weave that in. And I did mark the moments in which I was like, wait, why? Like, why is she not afraid? Her attitude is casual. She does things like snicker. And I guess I misunderstood her state of mind or else, or else. And this is probably, I mean, if I had to bet, I'd say that she's just projecting a casual attitude because she wants him to think that she's not afraid. That's great. Please have your characters pretend. That is amazing. That is storytelling gold. But remember, interiority needs to tell us what is actually going on in her head. So we have that dual experience. The books are the one place where we get that dual experience. We get to see how the character is acting, how they hope to be acting, and how they're actually feeling. It's really cool. And I just think that 
when it comes to her sister, even though her sister's older, for some reason, she's really protective of her sister. We got a quick memory of her putting out a fire to save her sister, to save her from second degree burns, for example. So I'm just wondering, when it comes to my note on the plot paragraph, what if her sister is also at stake? And it can just be like her sister will be mad at her. Because again, we're talking about teenage lives here, like people who will be in serious, serious danger. I'm assuming we're talking about like human trafficking or some really serious thing. So so why not somehow mold the plot to honor this? I mean, assuming the suggestion resonates with you, why not mold the plot to make it so that her sister's life is also at stake or her sister's health or safety, something, right? Like something to justify why she would even consider keeping her mouth shut. So I think I think those are my notes. I I really liked the the setup in the query letter. I thought that was really promising. I just think the pages need some like we need tweaking when it comes to the pace. It's happening too fast. She already knows that Billy's out. She's not surprised. He already made arrangements. I don't understand how these arrangements happen. And so I think it's just about calibration at this point. And now we'll go to the very last query letter. Carly, will you read that for us? Dear Carly, thank you for everything you do with the shit no one tells you about writing. This is my first foray into the querying process, and I would be absolutely lost without your guidance. Cameron is a 78,000-word commercial adult fiction, told from the first-person POV of our narrator, Cam. Cam isn't stupid. She knows that her co-workers secretly want her to fail, that her dad left because he wanted a son, that the life she's created for herself, partner track at her white shoe law firm, reputation as one of the toughest M&A associates in Miami, a sprawling apartment looking over the bay, could be gone in a second. When her career hinges on a deal that won't close, she doesn't just stand in the mirror and speak positive affirmations. She does what she's always done, work harder than anyone in the room. No one is more surprised than Cam when Carol, a jaunty young thing in all athleisure, is the one to throw Cam a lifeline. Carol has survived and thrived as a professional high-end escort and just so happens to be employed by a board member of the too-good-to-fail company that Cam's client wants to buy and wants to buy cheap. Carol has motivations that Cam can't understand, but that doesn't stop Cam from following Carol into the world of California elites to find out exactly what skeletons are hiding in this perfect little startup's closet. In the spirit of my year of rest and relaxation and conversations with friends, Cameron explores the seismic shift of our 20s, of coming to terms with our ambitions and expectations of life, of the seemingly small decisions that propel us from one version to the next, and how one person can change everything. I'm a newly minted writer, my English degree stuffed in the dark pockets of a storage unit while I've spent the last five years as a corporate attorney. I live in New York City with my husband and two 70-pound lap dogs, and when I'm not working or traveling or editing Cameron, I'm working on my second novel, which is now at 30,000 words. I hope you enjoy Cameron, and I thank you for this wonderful opportunity. I have included the first five pages below and would be more than happy to send the full manuscript upon request. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. And what was the word count and what did you think of the query letter? All right. This one came in at 409 words, so a little bit longer than my last one there. Okay. So first of all, I don't like this title, Cameron. Okay. So it's the main character's name. I get that, but it tells us nothing about the book. And your title is a perfect opportunity to tell us something I'm just trying to imagine the cover. Like, what would the cover even look like? It's like, would it just be our character? I don't know. I'm just struggling. I just don't love it. I don't love it. That's that's kind of my main point on the on the title. Now, small small notes here, technical things. Um, you wrote out seventy thousand words or seventy eight thousand words. Sorry, I would 
put like the numerical, like seven, eight, you know, three zeros. And then you use hyphens instead of M dashes. So use M dashes instead. I love M dashes. They're great. They look great. So please use M dashes instead of, instead of hyphens. Okay. So now I want to get to the content of the actual book here. So I'm finding it all a bit vague and definitely not sure about how this helps Cam's plot stakes, right? It says like, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't kind of know what Carol's reasons are for helping, right? And that doesn't help us as the reader understand why we care about the reasons either. And the other thing is, I don't know, I, I'm wondering if we could potentially have some comps that are a bit more like business or lawyer or tech or something like that. Cause there's a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of books in that space. And I don't know. I just, I felt like there was an opportunity there to, and potentially that's not what the book's about. And, you know, I'm speaking out of turn, but I do feel like there's an opportunity there for something more of like a business tech woman. I don't know, just, just like a female business type of comp in, in fiction. I don't know. I felt like, I felt like that was missing here. And other than that, I, I like this idea. I like this idea. It's a little bit long, which makes me think that potentially it's a bit of a meandering book and a meandering plot. So that worries me a little bit, but overall, I, I like the idea of it here. Awesome. And what was happening in those opening pages? Okay. So we start with chapter one. We meet our main character going into her office. Her office door is half open. Her boss is in there. And so she starts having a conversation with her boss. Her boss says, how did it go last night? And it, reading between the lines, it seems like she was supposed to go to an AA meeting and that she potentially got arrested for a DUI. And so there's like some trouble at work. Her boss knows what's going on with some personal life stuff. So they seem to have a really strong rapport. She was one of his students when he was a law professor. So they've known each other for a long time. He says he is putting her on the acquisitions team for a business, business acquisition through her law firm. And she thinks that she's getting the job number one, because she's the only woman at the firm. And it's a female-led company, but she also thinks that this isn't a good career move for her. She thinks that this might be a sinking ship. So she's a little bit disappointed by this, by this placement. And uh, we just have some more back and forth rapport with her boss. Very interesting. So how did you feel about the execution? All right. So I really liked the pages. I liked the pages more than I liked the query letter which always makes me feel like the query letter needs to be stronger because again, you want people to be able to get to these pages. And I do think the pages are really strong. I have some notes here of, you know, word choices I didn't like here and there, but overall, I really want to like this character. I really like female characters that go down fighting. You know, I really like that. Like the opening says somewhere in the crux of my soul, I wanted a fight for people to notice that something was different, that something was wrong. So, you know, she just has like a grudge against her or, you know, she just has this like chip on her shoulder, a perceived grudge against her for the beginning, which, which I really, really like. She's also moving. And I always talk about how much I like when we're moving, right? She's not just standing in front of a mirror talking about how she looks. She's like moving on her way up the elevator to her office, catches a glimpse of herself. And that's when she kind of explains what she's wearing, but it isn't in a, I'm wearing this, I'm wearing that. It says that she saw this fancy outfit on a mannequin in sacks and she recreated it with pieces from Zara, right? So this is telling us something about the character as well, that she maybe. Again, there's a reason why she's a lawyer, but is shopping at Zara because she says she could afford sex, right? So we're learning all of these things about her. And this is just in the second paragraph, right? So we're, we're learning a lot. We're moving. We're going up to her office. We learn a lot about, as I said, the rapport between her and her boss, which I think is really interesting about her work ethic. She says, when I'm here through the night, I'll hear the AC turn off, but it won't get any warmer. 
it makes me wonder if it's just white noise to keep us from feeling so alone. We get the sense, you know, she's, she's there all the time. She's somebody that really pays attention. And again, that's something that is really interesting to me in a character. There's a real intimacy between her and her boss, which is really interesting again, because he was her professor and then, you know, got her a job at the, at the law firm that he, that he works at. There's something interesting there. Is it sexual tension? I don't know. Perhaps it could be, perhaps not. You know, this isn't to say that it needs to. I'm just, I'm perceiving a real interesting intimacy between the two of them. Interested in how that plays out. Because if somebody that works for you got a DUI on a Saturday and you had to help, you know, bail them out in terms of like, you know, not going through and getting them, getting it out of the press and stuff like that. That's showing, yeah, that you care a lot about this employee. So so there's something really interesting happening there. Another thing that I'm interested about is this app, right? Because I talked about there's like this business element here between the merger and acquisition. So the app is a female-run, female-founded ride-sharing app. And I'm just wondering, does this exist in real life? I didn't really get a chance to research this. But if it does, then is this like a mirroring of something that's happening in real life? If it's not, that's a cool idea. So that was just something that kind of I was curious about and and was brought to my attention. We learn an incredible amount of information in these opening pages, which I think is, is so well done. Like, I really feel like I really understand these characters. I tend to, as I said, like a female character with the chip on her shoulder. And I like the way that she talks to her boss. She's like, Trey, get out of my office, like half jokingly. And, and I don't know, I think, I think there's something really, really cool happening here. I like it. Thank you so much. So that's it for today's Books with Hooks. Bianca, we hope you come back or else I at least will talk forever. Carly, you have the power of brevity, but I do not. And now let's go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. 
Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of a one hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is the author of New York Times bestseller, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, and national bestseller, The Lager Queen of Minnesota. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, Granta, The Rumpus, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. His debut, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, won the American Booksellers Association Indies Choice Award for Adult Debut Book of the Year. Born and raised in Minnesota, he now lives in California with his family. It's my pleasure to welcome Jay Ryan Straddle. Jay, welcome to the show. Oh, you're welcome. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, super excited to get this book because I loved your first two. Uh, And it's so amazing for our listeners when an author gets indie bookstores behind them in the US in terms of something being an Indies Choice Award. It is such a big deal because the hand selling that happens at the bookseller level in the US in indie bookstores is absolutely amazing, which is why we constantly are doing shout outs to Indies on the show because we love them so much. Now, Jay, before we dive into discussing this book, something that our listeners love hearing about is Journey to Publication. Kitchens of the Great Midwest was at the first book you ever wrote and you immediately got an agent and you immediately got it published or was it harder than that? Oh, it was harder than that. Oh, wonderful question. I've been a writer my whole life since I was a little kid because of my mom's influence, but also growing up in a working class Minnesota family, I didn't know any writers professionally. I also wasn't given the idea that I could become one. I wasn't disabused from it, but I wasn't encouraged to do it either. It was just Books were something that came from other planets (laughs) uh, to be enjoyed. My mom was a published poet, but wasn't putting food on the table. It was better than a hobby, but more (laughs) important than a preoccupation, but not a living. So when I went to college, I majored in radio, TV, film. I graduated with a bachelor's degree and moved to Los Angeles to work in the entertainment industry. I don't have an MFA. I think I only took one creative writing course as an undergraduate. So I was a chicken. I was really afraid to major in English or creative fiction writing or anything close to what I actually wanted to be doing. I just thought, well, I know I can always write on the side like my mom did. So 
I'll try to find a semi-creative job and hopefully enjoy that and write in the mornings and the weekends. And I did that most of my adult life. In my 20s, shortly after my mom passed away, having never written a book, I thought, boy, there's no time like the present. I'll, I'll write a book now. And I did in my late 20s. Um, and that book will never see the light of day. <laughs> I was disappointed about that at the time. But now looking back, I'm very grateful that wasn't my debut novel. If someone had taken pity on me and published it, uh, I would not have a writing career. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm very fortunate that it was merely an exercise in learning the discipline it takes to write a novel and not a published piece of work. At the time, I couldn't even get agents to respond to me. I think maybe one or two said no, but for the most part, my queries went completely unanswered. And I just thought, that's it. You know, that's what it's like for someone with few contacts in the industry who doesn't have an MFA, who's a total outsider. They can't even get people to respond to them. Nonetheless, after 10 years of reading a lot, taking writing classes, primarily at UCLA Extension out here in Los Angeles, night classes with writers like Rob Roberge and um, Lou Matthews, who taught me, once you start writing about things that matter to you, your work will get a lot better. I decided to take another crack at writing a novel manuscript. And it had been one that had been stewing in my head since about 2008 or 2009. So in 2013, I finally sat down and started writing it in the mornings and on weekends, as usual, enforcing those times as writing times. But I didn't think anyone would care. I expected the same kind of response I got from my first unpublished manuscript while writing Kitchens of the Great Midwest. But people in my life at the time pressured me to send it to agents, and I did after getting it copy edited from friends. By then also, I had met more people in the writing industry, mostly, well, through taking those classes, but also mostly through hosting a reading series as a fundraiser for a nonprofit I volunteered for called A26LA. So I met authors that way. I met authors through going to their events and readings. I realized it would be important to be a butt in the seat before you're a face at a microphone. So I attended a lot of events, got to know people through supporting them and giving them a venue through the nonprofit fundraising event called, called Hot Dish, and also through volunteering my time at online literary magazines and small presses, where I did freelance editing, manuscript reading, submission reading. All that was very useful for me as a writer and also as a future submitter, uh, getting an idea of the kind of things that are being submitted and reasons that a publisher might reject them. So while writing kitchens, I thought maybe four or five people will care, like my girlfriend, my brother, my dad, my grandma. And turns out my grandma didn't like the book at all uh, and explicitly told me she'll never recommend it to friends. For our listeners, I almost just spat out my coffee. <laughs> <So that was laughs> excellent. Yeah, but but then it happened. Then I, I sent it out to agents. I received a few, not only replies, but acceptances and agents who wanted to represent me. And I flew to New York, met with a couple and chose one. And then within about a week, he sold it. So it did happen all at once after 10 years of uh, <laughs> constant rejections, hard work, and a lot of reading. <laughs> yeah, so it, it so for someone who didn't know me, it would seem like, oh, an overnight success. Oh, wow, you just snapped your fingers and were published. Like, uh, no, uh, <laughs> hardly. But it did... It did proceed pretty quickly after that. I was fortunate that Kitchens was placed with an excellent editor in Pam Dorman at Viking, and she's been my editor ever since. So while each book since hasn't been as easy to write as Kitchens was, I haven't had five years to set on the idea and make it perfect in my head before I started writing it. But it's been uh, an extremely fortunate life since, and I'm very grateful for it. 
Yeah, there's so much you've said there that I absolutely love. And one, I think what it encapsulates is being a good literary citizen. Because I think a lot of writers out there just sit by themselves, don't support other writers, aren't advancing other writers' work. They don't even talk about it on social media. They're not reviewing it. And then the time comes for their book to go out and suddenly they want to ask for a lot of favors from people. And like anything in life, you get back what you put out there. I firmly believe that if you're going to be helping other people and being there at their events and supporting them, et cetera, et cetera, and giving them a platform like you did, then that comes back to you in, in some way down the line. The big thing is not to just wait until the last minute and be like, okay, I now have this book to promote. Everybody must please you know, do favors for me because that does not make you a good literary citizen. Right, now something I want to chat about, Jay, is your book's always have such an amazing sense of place. And so that's what I want to focus on today in terms of elements of craft. So you now live in California, and yet you continue to write about the Midwest. Now, when I lived in South Africa and I was writing, I never wrote about South Africa. I placed my books in New York and, you know, these fantastical lands and in utopias. And then when I left South Africa and moved to Canada, I suddenly wanted to write about South Africa and I suddenly felt like I had enough emotional and physical distance from the country to be able to write about it. So was that the case for you? Once you were in California, you could write about the Midwest or was it you you could have written about the Midwest when you were still there? That's exactly true. Uh, The experience you describe moving from South Africa to Canada, which is intriguing to me, by the way, that's a book right there, uh, (laughs) mirrors my less glamorous and exciting move from Minnesota to California. Yeah, given the hindsight and perspective of distance has been incalculable, but also maturity, perspective, wisdom, and appreciation. When I was growing up in Hastings, often all I could think about was getting out of there and (laughs) being somewhere uh, with more variety and liveliness and diversity of art, of ideas, of people. And now I Hastings, I think, has ended up in all three of my books, (laughs) explicitly named. Yeah, I'm certainly preoccupied with unpacking the elements in my past that have made me who I am. And also writing for that teenage kid who loved reading novels and saw Minnesota mentioned in so few. I feel a responsibility to represent, to the best of my ability, the place that I'm from, because I want to add to the conversation people are having about the Midwest. There's As far as I can tell, more Midwest-based authors now than there ever have been. I can name a dozen off the top of my head that I just love, but I still feel that, oh, I want to tell a story set there. I know that a future book will be set at least partially in California, but I still have other Midwestern stories to write. It's a setting of endless interest to me, and I still feel it's underrepresented, and I just can't quit it. I love that because we hear on the podcast all the time that people submit to agents and agents are like, oh, I love the story, but could it not be set, you know, in New York or Chicago or whatever the case may be is. And people get discouraged by that. And I love that somebody like you has carved out this place for writers who are writing about places that are not New York and Paris and Chicago. So for our listeners out there who are writing from smaller towns, smaller communities, keep going. Don't don't allow yourself to be bullied into changing setting this way. And 
something that I want to talk about is how some novels setting doesn't matter, right? The story could take place anywhere in terms of that particular plot. But for some books, setting becomes a kind of character. But when I speak to emerging writers about setting, they think they get confused and they go, oh, I must just describe the place better so that the the reader can imagine it. But setting, when done really well, actually informs plot elements. It informs characterization. You know, the character would not behave in a certain way had they not been raised in that particular community. Certain things in the story would not unfold as they had if that character had not lived in that particular community. And what I'm thinking about now specifically is the first chapter of your latest novel, which is what we're discussing today, Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. Now, for our listeners, Jay made two really big decisions in terms of how he began that opening chapter. We have two things that we don't often see in literature in general, never mind the opening chapter. One, we have a character who's experiencing a miscarriage and does so in a very stoic kind of way. And two, we have her hitting and really badly injuring a deer. And then there is how these scenes unfold, how the characters respond to this. Now, when I was reading that, I was going, you're not having a story that is based in Paris where someone is hitting a deer and people are quite cavalier about it. And certainly if you're having a story somewhere else where a woman is having a miscarriage, it would she would perhaps not respond with such stoicism as she would being a woman who's been raised in this kind of environment. So can you speak a bit about that? Absolutely. And that's one thing that my readers who don't have any experience in the Midwest are sometimes confused by is the stoicism of Midwesterners. Often in the face of these rather cataclysmic and emotional occurrences. Also, Bianca, that's extremely insightful. I love what you said about setting and forming character because it, it certainly does in my books. Now, I, I love a good plot-based novel, you know, page turner that could be set anywhere. Those often make better movies. <laughs> but that's not what I write, at least yet. Um, so because setting is so important to me, I do create characters that couldn't exist anywhere else and who are very evident products of that setting. Yeah, and do react with stoicism at some events that might give other people a heart attack <laughs> or at the very least cause them to um, not go on with their day <laughs> in in quite so casual a manner as Mariel's able to. But we do get to learn quite a bit about what inspired Mariel's stoicism throughout the book. So even if a reader finds it a little hard to swallow that a character could be so cavalier about these events, we come to understand her inner workings as the book progresses. And you know, hopefully that'll help orient non-Midwestern <laughs> um readers or readers not acquainted with the Midwest in terms of those kinds of decisions on, on characters. But yeah, no, setting to me is so important. And I totally agree with you that it can inspire, well, yeah, it can inspire plot and certainly drives characters. So in the novel, you have multiple POVs and you have multiple timelines. Can you tell us a bit about them when you begin writing a novel? Do you go, these are going to be my POV characters. This is how I'm going to come at it. Do you sit and plot it all out in terms of, will it be a linear timeline? Will I jump backwards and forwards in time? Or are you more an intuitive, pantsing kind of a writer? Unfortunately for my last two books, I've been an intuitive pantser. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to write Florence's backstory until I finished that first chapter. 
I, well, I also write out of order. So I'd written most of Mariel's story, regardless of where it ended up in the final book. I wrote that first. And then I sat down. I thought, you know, I really have to get to know Florence better. It's a disservice to the reader into the character, into the book, if I don't plumb her motivations with more honesty and insight. And in the midst of writing the 10th page of flashback in a Mariel chapter, I thought, okay, <laughs> stop, copy, new document, <laughs> new chapter, new point of view. Yeah, this deserves to stand alone as a chapter told in real time from this character's point of view and not told by their daughter. So that's how it came about. I just wanted people to understand Florence better. It's stupid, at least to me, or simple. But that that famous quote that I often see in refrigerator magnets about be kind, everyone's fighting a difficult struggle, comes to mind when I sit down and write these characters. I want to acquaint readers with their struggle. And often that means telling a lot of their life story <laughs> and telling it in the time in which it was happening and not merely in flashback or reflection or memory. So yeah, that's how it proceeded with each of my characters. I knew I was going to have Mariel and Ned back and forth. I thought when I sat down that this book would take place over a summer, the summer in which Mariel's mom is at church and Mariel's not picking her up from church and there's a standoff. And I thought that would be the spine of the book. But as I got into getting the new characters better, I discovered that, oh no, this book's going to take place over about 80 years. <laughs> ah, Yeah. And here I, I, I sat down looking at my last two books going, they take place over 30 years and 50 years. Man, can I just have a book that takes place over three months? That's my challenge. And <laughs> no, totally failed. Made it 80 years. <laughs> I love it though. But I also love how you said that you write out of order because for our listeners, it's so important to know that your process is your process. And you can hear every interview under the sun. You can hear that so-and-so writes alternating chapters exactly how you see them in the book. One character, then the next then the flashback, etc. But for someone else, it's a jigsaw puzzle. They are writing one whole character in a linear way. Then they're going to move those pieces around. Then they write in the other character. So honestly, it's what's important is what works for you. But what Jay's just said here now about how it started with flashback and then it was like, okay, no, I'm not going to have this chunk of backstory. I'm going to have it in its own timeline. It's important to differentiate when you want to do this, not just so that you don't have a chunks a chunk of backstory. But remember, when a character gives backstory, they're giving it from a point in the future. They have lived this. Time has passed. Their perspective on it might have changed. Maybe something happened in the past that they were really angry about. And now when they're telling it 30 years later, they've come to terms with it and they have a totally different take on it, right? But when it was happening in that time in the past they were furious about it and so you want to capture that without their future self interfering in their perception of it which is that's when you know something should be its own timeline as opposed to just backstory do you agree jay that's extremely insightful well you're you're really brilliant at uh, uh dissecting and encapsulating a lot of, a lot of really complicated concepts when it comes to fiction writing you, you, you make it sound easier than it actually is for me to execute. <laughs> I thought, oh, man, I should have listened to this podcast before I started writing this book. <laughs> it, it could have only taken half the time if I understood these concepts the way you're describing them. Instead, I just kind of struggled through them, eventually coming to the conclusions you did through multiple edits. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Also, this being my third book, I thought I had an idea of how to write a novel. Unfortunately, I think I still feel like I'm sitting down to write my first novel every time I sit down to write. I sit down and look at 
Microsoft Word document one blank page and just go, all right, well, how do I do this again? And typically my hacks are think of an ending. And I usually think of an ending because I think of a theme first and I think of a theme first by answering three questions, which for this book and generally my previous two books have been, what do I want to see in the world? What do I want to learn about? And what am I afraid of? And I get those down and then I think, okay, I think I know what the general message of this will be catalyzed around this. So I know what ending I want, what the final impression I leave with readers will be, or hopefully will be. I know what the final impression of the book for me will be. So then I just start really far away from that. <laughs> yeah, like if the ending takes place in 2019 in a cabin in northern Minnesota, I'm going to start it in the 90s. And this that character in that final chapter isn't even born yet. So yeah, that's kind of my hack for writing a novel is to come up with an ending and start really far away from it. But in between, yeah, writing out of order is huge because I have to be enthusiastic about what I'm writing. And some mornings I think think of an idea and I go, oh, I'm not writing that character. I'm writing a different character. Then I have to go, no, no, write the one that is bursting out of your veins. Sit down and write that out. Write it while, write it while it's given you a charge. If that's the idea that woke you up or the idea that you know made you pull over <laughs> write it down. <laughs> uh, that's the one you should be writing that day. Uh, screw what you're uh, just, well, well, don't screw what you're writing. Just set it aside <laughs> and uh, get back to it. Write this and who knows what you might discover. I often, I retcon my work all the time. I'll go back and change things in chapters or whole sections of the book that I've already written just to fit in this new idea I had. You know, until a book's out in the world, you can do that. I, I can't tell you how many times I've spoken with fellow authors who feel like, Oh, I'm just progressing through the book, beginning, middle to end, and it's inviolate what happened before. I must progress from what I've established. And oh, it's it, one of the most liberating things I learned for myself as a writer is I don't have to do that. I can go back and change. And yeah, it, it takes longer, but if it's a happier process that tells a story that's closer to your heart, it's worth it. Yeah, we we have an agent on the podcast who's a co-host who says that the goal is not efficiency. The mm. goal is is to create art. We need to remember that we've got something to say and you need to work through this process to get to the point where you're saying what you want to say. And it may not be efficient. It may be messy, but you've got to go through all those dead ends and all the messy bits to go, okay, well, that didn't work, but this new way is is going to work. And so, you know, I think we need to forget about the damn efficiency part. And, mm. and it's true in that every book teaches you how to write it. It doesn't mm. matter how many books you've written. For me, it doesn't get easier, certainly, because each book is going to pose its own challenges. And you've got to listen to the book telling you what it needs, as opposed to you sitting there cracking the whip and telling the book what you expect it to be. So I love that you've got that kind of organic approach to it and that you've got the patience to allow the book to breathe, because that's what it's about, I think, at the end of the day. We're pretty much out of time, Jay. Do you have any specific advice that you'd like to leave our listeners with in terms of many of them are in the query trenches? They have written a novel, they've gone out on submission, they're getting the silence like you got, um, mm -hmm. and they're feeling pretty defeated. And any advice you have for them in terms of moving forward, knowing when to quit a book, knowing when to start something new would be really helpful for them. Yeah, I would say a couple of things, one of which is one of the things I learned during my search for agents is that an agent will take you on if they know exactly who to sell your book to. So you getting a, a rejection from an agent is basically them saying, 
I don't know anyone off the top of my head for whom this is a slam dunk. Just for that one agent, though. You know, every agent has a different Rolodex. Every agent has different contacts and different levels of relationship with different editors. So even a really high flying, like whatever A-list agent isn't going to know everybody or isn't going to have the same taste in terms of what they take on or have the same kind of relationship with editors as other agents. So it's a lot more personalized than I thought. It's much less generalized. Like even getting rejections from five agents is by no means like, oh yeah, 10 agents, 15 agents. Yeah. It, it's just that they're not, they're not in the habit of throwing darts against the wall. Like their time is valuable like anyone else's and they just can't think of anyone right then that's looking for that. And so the trick is just finding that, just threading that needle. It's, I, don't, I don't know how many ideas out there would be the sort of ideas where like every agent would say yes to. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a very personalized and specific thing. And also having edited for small presses and having acquired, pub, having acquired manuscripts for publication at a small press, presses turn down manuscripts for all kinds of arbitrary reasons that the writer will never know about. Like, oh, we just got, we just accepted a submission that takes place in the same area, or we just accepted a submission with a very similar, uh, you know, either very similar plot or setting or kinds of characters or ages of characters, or, oh, you know what, we took on too many male writers this last month. It's so arbitrary and unknowable to the submitter that when you're sitting alone in your office or bedroom or <laughs> a cubicle at work after hours working on a novel, it's so personal and private. The world gets so small. But one of the things I learned from these experiences was that it's actually really large and you'll never know the impersonal, arbitrary reasons why you're getting that rejection letter. So, so just keep at it. And maybe a year from now, an agent who in the meantime has met someone who's looking for the idea that you submitted a year ago, we'll get back to you and say, hey, you still shopping that novel? <laughs> I certainly got got pings later on from agents that rejected me. Um, so yeah, just be patient. And if something isn't working for some reason, if either you can't find an agent or that agent can't find an editor, work on something else. I've had many friends who've done it and they've promptly sold their next books and just decided that, well, maybe I needed to write that book to get to this one that did sell. I mean, that happened for me too. So it, it stinks to have spent years of time on something that you want to see the light of day. But in my case, it was certainly good that it didn't. So either way, you're a better writer for having written it. <laughs> amazing, amazing advice. Thank you so much, Jay. We appreciate having you on the show. For our listeners, go out and get Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club. We'll link to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The Beta Reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up.
For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Lira agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.